Abraham is returning victorious from a risky battle, and he passes by the city of Shalem, and this king comes out to meet him. And we're told that this king is also a priest who serves the same God that Abraham does. Ah, yes, Melchizedek. This man's a mystery. We don't know why he worships Abraham's God. We don't even know his family lineage. Exactly. But here's what happens. Melchizedek brings this great feast out to Abraham and his army, and then he gives God's blessing to Abraham, saying God is the one who gave him this victory over his enemies. Then Abraham gives Melchizedek one-tenth of everything that he has, and that's the story. So what is it all about? Well, Melchizedek is the king and the priest of Shalem, which is an ancient name short for Jerusalem. Ah, Jerusalem, which will later become the capital of Abraham's future family, where the temple is built. And that 10% that Abraham gives Melchizedek, that's just like the 10% Israelites will later give to honor the priests who work in the temple. Exactly. And so here is Abraham, the father of the Israelites, and he's honoring a royal priesthood that existed long before Israel's temple or their priests. Back to Abraham, we find out that he and Sarah are unable to have kids. And so God eventually does give them their own son, Isaac, but then God promptly asks for the life of that son back. Abraham is called to offer up Isaac on a mountain as a sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain, build an altar, and right as Abraham is about to offer up his son, God stops him and he provides a substitute ram that can be sacrificed in Isaac's place. And here, the narrator stops the story and starts speaking to you, the reader, saying, this is why we today say, on the mountain of Yahweh, it will be provided. The mountain of Yahweh, that's Jerusalem. That's right. And so notice in both of these stories we've looked at, Abraham is near that high place that will later be called Jerusalem. In the first story, Abraham meets a royal priest. And in the second story, God provides a substitute sacrifice that covers for the sins of Abraham's family. Yes, and both of these stories point forward to the need for a future royal priest who will also become a sacrifice for the sins of Abraham and his family. Well, if you were with us last week, we began to untangle the mystery of Melchizedek. So this is gonna be part two of that journey. So I'm going to give a quick review of where we were, but if you need to grab the app or go on the website, you can get kind of the first 20 minutes we explain some of the mystery. Today we're going to apply more of that. Who is Melchizedek and why do we care? Well, before you look at any passage of the Bible, you want to figure out who the original audience is and what they're asking. And our original audience has several things they're struggling with. Number one, they thought that grace, what Jesus did, plus obeying some part of the law, keeping some part of the commandment, made them perfect before God. Grace wasn't quite enough. It was grace plus sacrifice, grace plus works, grace plus obedience. And so our writer's going to address that. Number two, they thought that perfect people were like the, the ancients, Abraham, the saints like Moses. Normal people like you and I couldn't attain perfection. We couldn't be saints. And he's going to dispel that. Thirdly, they knew that Jesus might be the Messiah because he's from the tribe of Judah, but in no way he could be a priest because priests come from the tribe of Levi and Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Therefore, Jesus is unqualified to be a priest. 
And that's what we untangled last week. Quick reminder, though, of how he untangled that. It was really genius, and it gets a little bit more complicated, opaque, and genius today. He's writing here about Jesus around, the writer's about 50 A.D. for the writer Hebrews. And he says, hey, David mentions Melchizedek relating to Messiah. Long before Moses even gave us the commandments about the Levites and priests and those requirements, long before that there was another priesthood named Melchizedek that predated all of those requirements. Jesus, as affirmed by David, is from a priesthood that was superior, it was permanent, and it predated all the requirements of the law. And that is why Jesus is not only a high priest who's qualified, though he's not from the, pri the priesthood of Levi, he's from a superior priesthood, a permanent priesthood. So that's 20 minutes last week summarized here, only all the details in last week's message. So we have Abraham coming before Melchizedek, struck that Melchizedek is the, is the, the throughput of God's blessing to him, the communicator of God's blessing to him. And he's so overwhelmed by that that he can't help but live and give in light of the blessing that he's received from God through Melchizedek. And that's really our main application for today as we look at how to apply this to our life. How do we live and give in light of these promises of perfection? How do you live and give in light of the promise of perfection that only comes through Jesus? And he mentions this multiple times. Here's kind of his thesis. They received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, the one who had the promises. And therefore, if perfection came from the law, it would have been fine, but we didn't. Perfection comes through the promises of Melchizedek, and those came from the promises of Jesus. So when you understand the promises of perfection, you can't help but give and live in light of that. So let's experiment with that for a moment. If you really knew that you were perfect before God, not like you know, got a second chance to do it on your own, but in God's eyes, you were perfect. You were a saint. You were righteous before him. How would that change your behavior today? How do people who know they've received perfection based on what God did for them, not what they do for God, how do those people live? I'll give you a couple categories to think about. How would a person who's been promised perfection handle criticism? Wouldn't you be able to take feedback better because whatever you're being criticized stands under the umbrella of God seeing you as perfect and he probably forgave you for one of these things that are being pointed out? How would a person promise perfection parent with grace and truth rather than reacting to your kid's behavior as if your sense of worth is dependent upon whether they obey or disobey or whether or not they did the right thing or making the right choices? You can use grace or truth without being reactionary because you're not defined by what your kids do. You're perfectly perfected in Christ. Maybe not over-exaggerate the severity of other people's sins because all sins are equally make you fall before God. So you offer some grace and mercy because you've been forgiven of that and more. Maybe you're not surprised by the severity of human evil. You're not naive. You expect people to have wicked hearts because the Bible says they have wicked hearts. And when you had a wicked heart, God was able to perfect you. So you simultaneously cannot be naive toward people's cruelty. But the other side, you can also know everybody's redeemable. It would give you both 
a lack of naivety on this side, but also a sense of hope. How would a person promised perfection be generous with their temporary possessions? If you really know that you had eternal treasures that moth and rust can't touch, how might you look at your physical resources here? You want to manage them well, you want to steward them well, but they're just temporary. How might you not be obsessed with them or, or feel like they're going to give you ultimate security when you have real security in heaven? How might a person promised perfection see the law as a diagnosis tool that shows you what you do wrong, but not a source of pride? Look how I obeyed something. How would a person promised perfection handle temporary pain in light of eternity? If you know what you're going through is hard, but it's temporary, but what you have to look forward to is forever and permanent, wouldn't it put today's trials in perspective? These are all the themes and applications the writer of Hebrew has. How do you live and give in light of his perfection? So three perfect promises that he offers us here through the story of Melchizedek. The first one, I want you to live and give out of the sense of being perfectly blessed by God. Now you hear that word all the time, I'm blessed. Somebody sneezes, that's you, bless you. What does that word even mean, Blessed. If you outline this passage, you'll see it says, For this Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, he was also the priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings, and he blessed him. He said, all the victory you had today, all the wealth you accumulated today, all the blessings that are going to come in the future you don't yet know about, these are acts of God's benevolence towards you. And the word bless is a really interesting word both used in the Old Testament in Hebrew and translated in the New Testament in Greek. Here the word is, got the bottom of the screen, look at that word, eulogio. Eulogio. What word does that look like in English? Eulogio. To eulogize. To eulogize. It's weird that God blesses you, he eulogizes you. But have you ever been to a funeral? You get to hear the best about that person, right? I mean, it's not like a guy's kind of a scoundrel. You hear the best stories. In fact, we had a funeral here last weekend. A woman I was a dear friend with who came to our church, and we eulogized her. We told stories over her. Sometimes I don't know the people who died. And I'm like, man, by the time I'm done with that funeral, I'm like, man, that's the best person ever lived on earth. I wish I'd known them. I want you to imagine this. Imagine God before the angels in heaven before all the people on earth, telling the best stories about you. But it's not dependent on what you've done and editing out the bad parts. He's telling the best stories about who you are in Christ. You are blessed. You are storytelling. You are everything you can't even imagine you could be as God tells these stories. He eulogizes you. I was talking to my friend Mike. had a, a doctor friend who's lived here in the States for many, many years but he grew up in the Philippines, and he knew he was approaching those last couple of years of his life. So he told his family he wanted to move because he wanted to die back in his hometown in the Philippines. Nine kids, grandkids, they all decided to have a celebration of grandpa and dad by having a celebration of life before he left. Because many knew they were never going to return to the Philippines. So sure enough, grandpa came in. And for hours, they just told stories about how much they loved Grandpa and loved their dad and the impact he had and what he had done and what he meant. 
You ever thought, like, at your, you're at a funeral, you think, I, I bet you the deceased wish they were here right now to hear these stories, right? Nobody says anything nice till you're dead. Like, wouldn't it be nice if they said nicely when you're alive? It was such an incredible moment for this patriarch of the family to hear, to be eulogized, to hear the impact he had made. Now imagine that's with God. This is the promise Melchizedek brings. The blessing to Abraham is despite the fact that you've lied, despite the fact you took Lot with you, despite the fact that you've lied twice about your wife being your sister, he's been a scoundrel. And yet God is eulogizing over him and telling him stories. And so the application here for you and I is that we bless others because we've received this unconditional blessing from God. You see this all through the New Testament. Here's one example from Ephesians. We bless God and bless others because we've received a perfect blessing. This is what he says in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father, you bless God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. See, when you're blessed, when you get what it means to feel the full generosity of God, you can't help but spill it out back to him and spill it back out to others made in his image. If you followed the Olympics this year, there's a story that just struck me. Dressel is, uh, is getting, I don't know how many gold medals he got, but he, he's racing to, I think it was his first, in an individual event. Sure enough, beats everybody in the competition, hits the wall, boom! Stands up, national anthem going, and they put the gold medal that he earned on his neck. Steps out, steps down walks over to the bleachers and calls out to his teammate, Curry. Hey! Takes a gold medal off and says, this is for you. And he puts it over him. See, that's the gospel. We're going to see that in Romans 12. He who ran the race, he who competed on our behalf, he who met the qualifications we couldn't, he who won the gold, walks over to us schlubs in the bleachers who can't live up to our own standards, let alone God's, and says, hey, this is for you. Put it on your neck. You are blessed that in Christ you've achieved something that you could never have achieved on your own. So, perfect blessing. The second promise we have is you are perfectly righteous in Christ. This is so powerful. To be perfectly righteous in Christ. See, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham couldn't help but live and give. He gave a tenth of all. The word tithe is to give a ten percent of what you have to God and your local worship center was kind of the, the, the idea of what he was giving there to Melchizedek, who was the, the, the priest of this worship center. But he goes on to kind of define that. He says, so Melchizedek, a few things about him. He, Abraham saw him as a conduit of a way to say thanks to God. Number two, his name means the king of righteousness. This is so key. Melchizedek, who points ultimately to Jesus was saying, I am a prototype of the ultimate one who can make you righteous before God. Have a right standing before God. Think about everything you've ever done wrong. You're like, I don't want to think about everything I've ever done wrong. Think about all the things that you've thought, participated in, things you should have done. And God says, I can make you right before me. I can give you my righteousness, credit it to your account. Melchizedek's pointing to that idea. He's also the king of peace, that he can bring ultimate shalom to your life. Now, Melchizedek, we don't know a lot about him, the writer says. We don't know his genealogy. We don't know his father. We don't know his mother. We don't know his genealogy. 
He's a forever priest who doesn't seem to have a beginning or an end. So maybe it was actually Jesus back there as a theophanies, an Old Testament appearance of God. So maybe it was Jesus coming from his own priesthood. We don't know. I gave three theories last week if you want to look. But here's the point. This is going to start going through, going through the book of Hebrews. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus' righteousness is so good, it doesn't need Jesus plus beat yourself up for four years. Jesus plus I worked really hard this week. Jesus plus I was really obedient this month to make you righteous. No. You add anything to Jesus and you're saying, oh, it wasn't quite, it was just good Jesus, but let me kind of polish the subcaps for you, make it a little bit better with my obedience. No. When you realize that Jesus plus nothing equals everything that motivates you to then want to please him because you don't have to please him. You no longer have to. You want to. You no longer should. It's a could. He goes on to say that the gospel in the book of Romans is picked up here and says that the gospel of God, what motivates you as a Christian, that you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God. You want power in your life? Where's the power of God under deliverance or salvation in your life? It comes from this, both to the Jews and the Greeks. In the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith. Now notice, it's a righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness. He gives you. And by faith, not works, you receive it and it's credited to your account. And then you live every day in light of that perfection. In light of knowing that you are right before God. This verse changed the world. Now, it changed it during Paul's day, but the man who was really struck by this was a man named Martin Luther. If you don't know the story of Martin Luther, it's pretty amazing. About 1500, he was living, 1570s. And as a young kid heading toward law school, he was struck by just his inability to live up to his own standards, let alone God's. He didn't follow the golden rule. He wasn't as generous toward others as he was toward himself. He didn't give other people the benefit of the doubt the way he gave it to himself. And he was wrestling. If he died today and stood before God, his good deeds would not outweigh his bad deeds. And he was a strong religious person. He's in a thunderstorm one day and lightning all around him, striking. And he's scared to death. He's going to die and stand before God. He yells out, save me, St. Anne. He decides to become a monk. And dedicate every day to being righteous before God. And he prays harder than anyone I've ever read about. He confesses longer than anyone I've ever heard. But no matter what it is, he always could have done more, should have done more. In fact, he was in confession one day, and this was a regular practice. He's sitting in the confessional booth with his father, uh, the priest, for six hours confessing. And this guy lived a squeaky clean life by any standard. He's like, you know, I really could have been more patient yesterday with the, with the nuns. I really feel like I was a little bit selfish the way I put the tonality into this or that. I feel like I was a little bit proud and arrogant. Six hours, his mentor sitting on the other side of the confessional like, <sighs> finally, after six hours of confession, third week in a row, they step out of the confessional booth and his mentor turns to him and says, Martin! Bring me adultery, bring me murder, bring me something, not this tedious list of little things. 
But Martin Luther knew there are no such thing as little things. Everything was equally weighed before God. Until he comes across this verse in Romans. The idea that you can be righteous, perfectly righteous before God based on what God does for you. Not what you do for God. And he will ultimately risk his life to say that the message that's in the Bible had got out in the whack with the message from the church. He never wanted to start more churches or a whole other denomination or denominations like the Protestant movement. But it came out of his commitment to risking his life to make sure we knew that we can only be eulogized by God but perfectly righteous before God. So how valuable is it to be perfectly righteous before God? That's the writer's next point. And it is the weirdest argument you're ever going to hear. And yet it's genius. Here's what he says. <laughs> so let's consider how great this man is, the one that pointed Jesus, Melchizedek. To whom even the patriarch Abraham saw his worth and gave a tenth of all of his spoils. And indeed, today, we practice that idea. The sons of Levi, the priests receive the priesthood, a blessing from God. They get the blessing from God, the priesthood, through Moses, having a commandment to receive tithes from the people. So we tithe to our local worship center and the priest today because Melchizedek was tithed by Abraham for being the high priest. That was the, the, the premise or how this started. According to the law we got from Moses, that is their brethren. Though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Oh my goodness, we're talking about the loins of Abraham. Why in the world are we talking about the loins of Abraham? We'll get to there in a second. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, Melchizedek didn't get his genealogy from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. All right, you're like, Chad, what in the world are you saying? What in the world is he saying? Let me give it to you in a picture, and then we'll read the next part, because I like pictures. Here's, here's what he's saying. <laughs> it's so bizarre and genius. He says, guys, you are focusing on important stuff about the law. Who is Moses? And who are the Levites? And who came from Levi or who came from Aaron? As if that's the superior priesthood. As if that's what's important. But if we go way back before they have been born, 400 years before they were born was Abraham. The father of all of them. And in his loins, in his seed, at that moment, Moses was in his seed. Aaron's descendants were in his seed. The priests were in his seed. So in one sense, <laughs> at the moment Abraham bowed down and acknowledged the superior priesthood that is Melchizedek, in some sense Moses was there, kind of. In some sense Melchizedek, uh, Aaron's descendants were there, and the Levites were there. So everybody you've ever heard of from the Bible was there acknowledging the greater priesthood. And that bizarre. And yet for people who are all about circumcision and what seed you're from and what tribe you're from, it's kind of the brilliant, perfect argument for them. But that's what he's saying. All right, with that in mind, let's read the next part of the verse as he's talking more about the loins of Abraham. So now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. In other words, the lesser priesthood is blessing the greater priesthood in Melchizedek. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, the Levites and priests, who receive tithes today, we give them our best, but they paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of Abraham, his father, who met him. 
Like, what a weird argument. Yeah. But he's basically saying, if the people we give to, because we recognize their worth as priests, were in the loins of Abraham who recognized the greater one, the priest of Melchizedek, then we should all focus on the greater one. And, remember that picture I showed you? And if Melchizedek was the greater one and he pointed to Jesus, then the ultimate priest and the ultimate source of our tithe, the ultimate source for our affection, the ultimate source of righteousness is Jesus. And that's what he's saying. Therefore, what's the application? Generously tithe, give a, a percentage of your income to God in light of being perfectly righteous from God. One of my favorite stories last weekend at the funeral we did is uh, Kristen was talking about her grandmother and she said her grandmother's been keeping journals for the last 20 years that she's been living with her kids and grandkids. And the journal has everything she's felt, good or bad. She came down to her grandma's apartment and grandma's laughing, reading through her old journals. Grandma, what's so funny? I am. What do you mean you are? And uh, she's reading, she says, well, apparently I was mad at your dad, her son-in-law, several years ago. It says, Dave is acting like a damn fool today. He's so stubborn, won't listen to anything we say. And I just realized that when I'm dead and gone, somebody's gonna read my journals. So I'm going back through my journals and I'm editing them. But I still love him, but he's still nice. But you know, I know Jesus loves him. So she went back over 30 years of journals and re-edited them. <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of being righteous before God. You don't have to go back and edit everything you've ever done because you're going to miss it anyway. You're righteous. He covers it all. So I give and live in light of being perfect before him. Which is why he kind of expands on that in this last part. And that is his third promise is that you are perfectly perfected and this I love because it's one thing to say well I'm perfect but I can kind of improve in it but he says almost like you're perfectly perfected and whatever you add by the law whatever you add by your obedience is not going to perfect perfection he says let's talk about the problem with the law if perfection had come through the Levitical priesthood for under it people receive the law what further need would there be for another priest who would rise according to the order of Melchizedek so he's referencing David saying, remember David from last week, about 1,000 B.C., says, the Messiah doesn't come through Levi, comes through Melchizedek. Why would we need a better priest that comes through Melchizedek if the Levites were doing such a great job, he's saying. Why would we one who's not called from the sons of, of Aaron? For the priesthood had to be changed of necessity. There's also a change of the law. He goes on. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Melchizedek is from another tribe, not Levi, from Judah. No, not Levi from a different tribe. We don't know. From which no man has ever officiated at the altar. We've never had anyone related to Melchizedek at the altar all these years, even though he was superior. For it is evident that the Lord arose from Judah. We got a serious problem. He is not from the right tribe. He's from Judah. Of which tribe Moses spoke concerning nothing about the priesthood. He didn't say anything about the priesthood in Judah. And it is yet far more evident if, if he comes from the likeness of Melchizedek, the greater priesthood, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of an endless life. Again, this is very dense and very wordy. But it's basically saying... Melchizedek's descendants have never been on the throne, and the Bible says that Messiah needs to come from a greater priesthood that's not Levi anyway, and this is what you're worried about. So he finishes here. He quotes David from Psalm 110. 
For he testifies Messiah and says, For you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former priesthood because of its weakness and unprofitability. The priesthood never made anybody righteous. It just showed you that you were unrighteous. It was unprofitable for making you righteous, unprofitable for getting it all worked out, for the law made nothing perfect. So why do you think the law could improve on Jesus? That was dense, wasn't it? You know what he's saying in kind of Chad simple language? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You are perfectly perfected and you don't need to add anything to it. Just believe. And keep believing and keep living and giving in light of that reality. And that's his application. He said it multiple times in kind of wordy ways, but he's really trying to encourage you and I to generously bless God and others in light of the blessing we receive from him, right? These promises of perfection, to live and give in light of the promise of perfection that came only for Jesus. Promises from God, perfection from God the law could not create. That's what he wants for us. You ever taken a moment to think about how blessed you are by God? Or so quick to complain, so quick to talk about what should be improved. But do you ever take time to just reflect on how much, how many stories God has used in your life, made out of your life, used you to create other stories in your life? And not just individually, think of us as a group. I mean, when I think about this, and I've been thinking about this a lot, working on this message for the last few months, I'm just so humbled and honored to be a part of a community that God has brought together such incredible blessing. And those blessings have extended over time. This year I'm going on having been here for 20 years at Horizon. And I have just seen stories that God has brought and told over people. And we started our church 24, 25 years ago, depending on how you want to pick our start date. And like small businesses, most churches who are church plants, like 70 to 80% of them fail. And yet God's blessing is ours didn't. And our church started by people writing handwritten notes to their neighbors and friends who've never been to church. Church growth experts would tell us not to plant a church in our area because there's not enough new growth coming in. You build churches with new people moving into a community. The turnaround in some of our neighborhoods is a, a new house every 25 years. It's like insane. And yet people wrote handwritten notes to their friends and their friends came to a church service, an exploring service that played secular music and presented the gospel and the idea of righteousness in the most bizarre way that they'd ever seen, but they loved it. And a verse-by-verse Bible teaching service, and God blessed it, and people started growing and coming. And then we looked for property, 26 pieces of property we looked at, and God found this piece, as beautiful as it is. And because people have been giving in advance, we always got this future growth fund that we have for things that God might do in the future. People have been giving that for years, which had the money available, so when this came, property came available, we could negotiate and buy it. We had this property, but we didn't have enough dirt. So we prayed, and God was faithful. We put 210,000 cubic yards of dirt on this property. And God blessed us. Many of us, my family included, we, we did four-year pledges to give above and beyond our tithe to be part of facilitating a place where the gospel could be known. Some then came in two years later and gave two-year pledges. And then the Great Recession hit, and many companies and many businesses didn't survive the Great Recession. But God blessed us. Not only that, because we had money in the bank, we were able to negotiate hard. Nobody was building in 2008 except us. We built this facility 
unbelievable discount because of God's faithful people giving, his faithful timing in creating the space. Now we get into this building, we're about to hit COVID. Or again, many businesses and companies didn't make it through COVID. But because people giving in advance to have cameras ready and facilities ready, and then once we were in the space, hey, we think we might need a tent, people saying, hey, I want to raise my hand and give above and beyond for that. We have a tent for those watching out in the tent and those watching online. It's just been a continual story of how God has prepared us in advance for what he has. In fact, something really cool happened to me as last year I was uh, skiing and I, I love downhill skiing and I'm there with a group of guys who don't really know each other real well. Bill, Matt, and Trey. We finished skiing the day we go to dinner. I said, guys, why don't you tell your story because I don't think each one of you know each other's story and it's going to be so cool to hear kind of how people's destinies have been changed just here at this table. Bill tells the story of meeting our church plant team 25 years ago up in Chicago while they were learning how to do church and coming up with this idea. He was an atheist at the time. He's kind of struck by this group of normal people trying to do church for people who hate church. He says, well, I live back in Cincinnati. He starts attending. He tells the story about coming to Christ. Trey at the other side of the table met with him, talked with him, gave him science to show that God existed, and eventually he came to believe in God, Jesus, the Bible, and came to know Jesus at our church. And Trey said, you know, we were part of the leadership team trying to put together environments and put together the giving to create environments so hopefully people like you would come and find Jesus. Matt raised his hand, well, I don't know anything about that, but I came the first week we were in the new building. And I wasn't a Christian. I used to golf here on this property. In fact, I had one of my relatives got shot in, in an accident here on this property. And I wasn't really open to God or Jesus, but somebody invited me to come to the service with a handwritten note. Because we did that right before we got a new building, just like in the previous years. He says, I came and the first two people I met happened to be the name of the two people who influenced me, my uncle and my aunt. And God continued to use that and I came to know Jesus about nine years ago. So then Trey tells a story of how God miraculously provided financially as people were giving four-year pledges and two-year pledges and how we dreamed of getting in this space and it just made no sense but a thousand people gave in hopes that we'd have enough space we couldn't fill this room our equipping service had like a hundred people in it now we have two services with 400 people in it and i'll tell you in a moment just what god's doing online during this time it was unbelievable. We were in faith saying, God, we hope you can fill this room because we hope if we, we lift you high and lift your word high, it will draw people unto yourself. And he has. And it was just so encouraging to sit around the table and hear all the ways these stories connected together. We were praying and giving in hopes this would happen. It happened, it happened, it happened. People's destinies being changed because people saw the value of the message of the gospel and said, light of God's gift to me, how can I not bless others and create environments for the people to hear about it? As I mentioned last week, if you haven't seen it before, several people have seen us and been struck by it. Right now, this Sunday, maybe you're watching online right now, 800 to 1,000 people now watch our services every weekend. So besides our three services, our impact has increased because of COVID. And maybe as you're watching right now online, maybe one of those 800, you're like, oh, that's me. I'm the dot up in Michigan, or I'm the dot in Wisconsin, or I'm the dot in Nevada, or I'm... We got a chance to follow the services more because we, we live down in Florida as well. And we get calls now from people who are being impacted by both our exploring service and equipping service because God has been working through us. Us. Rather than being crushed by COVID because of the giving related to our cameras and all those pieces, we were able to not only uh, 
kind of survive, but expand. I would just encourage you, be part of thanking God with me on how he has used us to impact even a greater arena. It's been amazing. And you think about our team, it takes about 200 to 300 people every weekend and every week, serving in finance, stuffing stuff uh, into programs, writing things, preparing things, leading small groups. It's 200 to 300 of us each week it takes to pull this off. You know, 14% of us are off offering compensated. We're the staff. And we're trying to equip the saints. And as we've opened back up, our need for people to continue to serve is greater than ever because more and more people are coming back. More and more people need serve. More and more kids are coming back in the children's ministry. And so maybe you're like, man, I'm ready to raise my hand. I want to be part of creating environments to serve others. Maybe you're watching online, you're like, well, I'm not ready to come back yet, but maybe financially you say, hey, I want to give to be part of facilitating something for others the way somebody before me facilitated and thanked God for what he's done in their life. That's what I think is so interesting about kind of the role I get to play as a church is as your pastor, I get to hear stories every week. Like I've been part of churches, you hope you're making life change, maybe it'll be a story come 10 years when I get to Jesus. But we hear every week real stories of how God used this place we designed to facilitate growth and to make it happen. And it's so humbling. I had a 20-year-old got her first job and she said, but I feel like God's prompted me to start tithing. I'm like, you don't have a lot of money. Maybe start a little smaller. What a great pastor I am, right? I'm like, you know, I don't want you. She said, no, I feel like God's doing that and he's growing my faith. I'm like, that's awesome. And this tithe, which is a small amount by most means, is a sacred amount. And during COVID, that became a way she grew spiritually. I talked to somebody a few months ago who's single again and going through all the challenges of single again and the turmoil, especially financially. I said, what's God doing in your life and how can I comfort you or help you? She said, I'm reading a book called The Blessing. And God has challenged me to start tithing. Like, really? Yeah. And I got to tell you, it is affirming that if I give a tenth of what I do have, it reminds me that God's the source of everything I do have. And God has shown faithful and he's healing me and he's strengthening me in ways I couldn't imagine. Like, wow. We have folks who tithe regularly to our church and they come up every year and say, hey, I really feel like God's prompting me to do something else. We have a list of projects that we keep on the back burner, kind of a wish list of things that we could do that we think might facilitate the gospel even more. And so if you feel like God's prompting you, we can give you that list as we do for many folks and just Hey, pray about this. And we've had many people say, no, not that, not that, not that. Yeah, I feel like God, I want to be part of that. That sounds like a lot of fun. I want to be part of kind of putting resources into that thing. In fact, if you haven't been to our children's program, we just remodeled the, uh, the, the big group space. It's reopened after 18 months today. And it looks fantastic. It's been 10 years since we remodeled it. It turned into kind of a big black box. It now looks gorgeous for our kids. So is God's prompting you to say, you know what, God's blessed me, I sing songs over me, I'm perfectly righteous before him, I'm perfectly perfected before him, how can I bless God and bless others? I would just say pray about it and come alongside us. Maybe that's coming alongside financially, maybe that's coming alongside by joining a group, maybe it's coming alongside by serving other people to help us facilitate this, but join the adventure. Because I just say, as your pastor, it is such a privilege to be part of a church that God is blessing and using us to transform identities and that we get to do this. And God, we're going to stand before God one day, and this is just so amazing about God's generosity. God's going to say, I did the work. You surrendered. I did work through you. I will now reward you for the work I did through you. What a deal. 
What a deal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your faithfulness to our community. Thank you for the sacred way you have gifts of time and treasure and talents from this community to change the world. You're taking our feeble efforts of music and teaching and taking hard passages like this one and trying to understand it and live it out. Grow us in the grace of giving that we may be used to impact others. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. See you all next week.